Okay, guys, we've taken a detour. Uh, we're headed to Donegal from Cliffs of Moor, Bolivon area, but we turned a three-hour drive into a four-and-a-half-hour drive because we couldn't miss stopping at uh, the spot of Adargul. I don't believe it's called Adargul anymore. You have to look at a map for Titanic Historical Society Adargul, and that's how it comes up on the map, but it's in County Mayo. We had to drive about 20 kilometers just completely out of the way of really any main roads. It's beautiful. There's a lake nearby. There's a mountain. And just, I'm out of breath because we just walked, but uh, just out of nowhere, the memorial is on the right side of the road, right under the mountain. And it is a gold monument of a ship that says Titanic and several passengers in bronze headed to the ship. I'll take tons of pictures, but I just wanted to do a voice note because it's pretty amazing. There are just houses across the street. The village is going on around us. Life is being lived around us. But, um, oh, I see a sign that says Adargul Pottery. So maybe it is still technically called Adargul. Uh, but yeah, it's... We're in the shadow of this gorgeous mountain and this spot that commemorates these people that never made it. It's where they were headed from this tiny village in the northwest part of Ireland. It's pretty amazing. I, I know I'm babbling, uh, but it's beautiful. You can hear cows in the distance. <laughs> Adargul Parish takes its name, actually, from Adargul Abbey, a church now in ruins on the shores of Loch Conn in County Mayo, Ireland, on the northwest coast. Its graveyard is extensive, heavy, grays on green. It lays just a mile eastward from the village of Lahardon, which sits in the glorious shadow of Nefin, the highest standalone mountain in the entire country. We didn't know that fact when we were there, standing right under it, in awe of the shadows mixing, all of it together, shades of cobalt with emerald and pewter, on that summer day last August. The Adargul River runs into Loch Conn, and both river and lake support a salmon run. I didn't know that either. We saw the river, watched the banks of it from our rental car, but with two very hungry and very tired children in the back seat, we sadly never put our toes into water in Adargul. We did pop into a village shop in Lahardon, desperate for a hot meal, but the town is so small that the next pub with food on the weekdays, was a good 20 miles away. I had read so much about the 14 Titanic passengers from Adargul, 14 young men and women who traveled together to Cove, then known as Queenstown, Ireland, where they prepared to board Titanic in third class. They raised their heads high, bags and laps, as fellow Irishman Eugene Daly played the bagpipes on the tender ships out to Titanic. Out to sea, and most of them, the Atlantic, that's where their personal story ends. Their collective tale is in the same breath as so many of the Titanic stories we know, repeated over and over. The Astors, the Strausses, Lightholder on the Collapsible, 
the Adergal 14. But as 14, we never learn the details inside their individual stories. And today I want to share with you what I've learned about those 14 people who walked away from the shadow of Nephin in April of 1912 toward the promise of life in America. I'm L.A. Beatles, and this is Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is from the mountain to the sea, the stories of the Adergal 14. All right. First things first, I want to thank my latest Patreon members. I want to thank Richard. I want to thank Lee. And I want to thank Krista. Thank you for supporting the podcast in this way. I appreciate you and all of my Patreon members so very much. It makes a world of difference. And I did want to mention that Patreon has not really changed, but I have added uh, a perk to all of the different levels, the different tiers on Patreon, which is access to live streams. So I have decided to do a live stream every six to eight weeks. I'll get the schedule figured out. I'm just not quite sure on the exact schedule yet, but we will be doing a Q&A format for those. And so I'll announce them a couple of weeks beforehand, give you a sense of the theme so that you can get any questions that you have together. And then it will stay premium content for one month before it is posted on my YouTube page. So it's exciting as an addition to the Patreon experience. Of course, it is on top of the bonus episodes, which are available to every tier as well. So that's exciting. I had a lot of fun doing the February live stream just a couple of weeks ago at the very beginning of the month. So yeah, looking forward to doing more. All right. Also, merch. I've had a lot of questions coming out of the first t-shirt campaign. Yes, you can now order shirts outside of it being a campaign. They were popular, which is exciting. And I've seen uh, pictures of a lot of you guys in them on Instagram or you've uh, emailed and I can't, it just blows my mind. Uh, it's so exciting. So yes, I have unlocked so that you can just order anytime and the shipping should happen within, I think, five to seven days. So if you go to the link in the show notes uh, to Bonfire, where I do sell my shirts and sweatshirts, you can just order them standalone now outside of the campaign. So thank you to everyone has, who has supported the pod that way as well. It helps Every every bit of support helps to grow the podcast, to allow me to think about events, to allow me to upgrade my equipment. Just all of it goes straight in to the podcast experience. So thank you. And I just want to say, coming out of the release of Titanic in 3D 4K, I said it in my reaction episode, but I'll say it one more time. What a joy it was to tag my photos share my photos of going to see it, see yours, have you tag the pod. Some of you went to the movies in your unsinkable t-shirts. Just incredible. This The joy that we find in this thing, the common bond of this thing, of Titanic, but also of that movie. I just think it's so rare in life to find that with people. And I, I keep telling my husband, like, oh, I've, I've found my people. Like, 
100% without a doubt. So the the community, the Titanic community overall is so strong on Instagram. I think it is particularly joyful and strong. So if you aren't on Instagram, think about joining if you're a Titanic person just for the Titanic accounts. It's so fun. Uh, and if you uh, are on Instagram and you're not following the pod yet, it is just, of course, at Unsinkable Pod. There we go. Just a couple of announcements. So this is an episode that I have been looking forward to building for almost two years, but I didn't want to even attempt it until I had been there to the Adderall Memorial in County Mayo. And I would like to note that I have been in contact with a member of the Adderall Titanic Society, which is in Adderall, and I have high hopes that an interview with her will be a follow-up episode at some point later this year. So stay tuned for more on this group. But when we were in Cove on the same trip, this was before we were in Adderall because we sort of went clockwise around the coast, we also went to the Titanic Experience Museum, which is right inside the former White Star Line offices. And when we stood right there where the passengers would have waited to board the tenders out to Titanic, right where the Adderall 14 would have stood, when we saw the ruins of the pier that they would have walked onto the tender, it was truly one of the best and most powerful experiences of my life. So this episode has been <laughs> much requested, but a long time in coming because I wanted to do it justice. And as you probably could tell in my intro, I have already teared up like two times while trying to record this. And if you hear me sniffle, I'm sorry if that sounds gross. It is because I am genuinely tearful as I talk about this uh, topic. Here we go. Third class tickets on board Titanic were seven pounds, $35, which may not seem like much now, but adjusted for inflation, that is a little over $1,000 per ticket in today's money. So basically the equivalent now of a plane ticket overseas or to you know a major destination. So it wasn't a drop in the bucket. It wasn't anything to be taken lightly. These passengers, these families would have saved for months and perhaps even years for a chance like this. Leherdon had a population of just 96 in 1912. 96 people spread over 22 houses. Of course, there were also other small villages nearby. And when I speak of the Adderall 14 being from Adderall the parish, that's what I mean, from the general Irish. Irish. Parish Irish. From the general area, though I know most were from Laherdon. Not even mentioning the cold, wet climate the brutality of farming and laboring and homekeeping in that environment, not even mentioning that, which is its own separate thing. Families were cramped in these villages. As you'll see when I list out the 14 people's personal backgrounds, all were from very large Roman Catholic families, farmers of the land and tradition. This was rural Ireland. There was not yet electricity in homes or running water. They would have six to 12 children typically in the family and all pushed together in three to four room homes. But according to Irish law at the time, only one child could inherit the land, which left the others to take their chances immigrating to America or perhaps finding domestic or farming jobs in other 
locations. But in either situation, you know, leaving, basically. There was very little work available, though, even in cities. And unfortunately, the only ways out of this oppressive class structure was marriage or immigration. There was intense poverty, but there was also an intense sense of community. So when these families sent their loved ones off, it was a very big deal. They held American wakes, as they were called, which were not for actual dead bodies, but instead to recognize and honor the grief of sending loved ones off on a ship, likely to never see them in person again. There was a reception line, traditional music, food, It was a celebration of hope, but also the death of a presence of this person they loved in their daily life. And so on April 8th and 9th, 1912, 14 people were the center of 14 American wakes in Adderkul. Perhaps the most well-known of the Adderkul 14 is a woman named Annie Louise McGowan. And in recent years, even more so because of author Hazel Gaynor's novel of the Titanic, the girl who came home. Now, I did an episode with Hazel about a year ago. It was one of the book club episodes. And I highly recommend you go back in the feed after this and look for it. It was an exceptional conversation. And she was so wonderful. Annie and the character she inspired in The Girl Who Came Home was how I opened that episode, of course. A 17-year-old girl on the verge of womanhood, hesitant but hopeful, prepares to leave absolutely everything behind, including a boy she loves, to make a go of things in America. She'll join 13 other members of this village, a significant percentage of people in this village, in third class on Titanic, and she'll be one of only three from her village to survive. This was Maggie Murphy, a character crafted with intrigue and precision by Hazel Gaynor. Through Maggie, we read a through line to our modern society via a parallel plot that involves her great-granddaughter, and we watch a woman process the breath-stealing grief of trauma and finally let the next generation in. Only three survived of the Adderall 14, this is true, and one of them was Annie McGowan, the inspiration for Maggie in the novel. From this point on, this is the real deal. This is Annie's story, and then it will be the others as well. Anne, Annie Louise McGowan, was actually born in Scranton, Pennsylvania in July of 1894, which is so interesting to me that she was actually born in the United States. She was the eldest child of an Irish Roman Catholic immigrant, John McGowan, who was a farmer, and his wife, Maria, who were both originally from the parish of Adderkul. Annie was one of seven children, all born between 1894 and 1906. This was a frenetic, large family, as you'll see with pretty much all of the passengers that we'll talk about today. Her parents had immigrated to the U.S settling in Pennsylvania, where she and her brother Anthony were born. But for reasons I couldn't quite clarify in the research, they returned home to County Mayo shortly after 1896, or in 1896 or right after, because her brother Anthony was born in 1896. In 1911, Annie is in the census records listed as a scholar, which meant she obviously was still attending school. And as a female and a teenager at this time, this was a wildly wonderful accomplishment in rural Ireland. You think about people boarding Titanic in Southampton or Queenstown, and I mean, at least I often do, you know, you visualize the edges of modernity sneaking into the frame. 
automobiles, wireless, cameras, clothing on the cusp of some form of contemporary, you know, lines that we recognize, 1912. It doesn't seem that long ago, and it wasn't. But in rural Ireland, it's a longer rope back, so to speak. It's a longer pull back. The Adderall group, we'll talk about it, but would have traveled by horse and buggy on part of their way to Queenstown. Annie is 17, and she writes to her paternal aunt, Catherine McGowan, who is the unmarried sister of her father, who had moved to the United States and now ran a boarding house in Chicago. She writes to her with the hope of going to America herself, returning to the place of her birth. And so Catherine McGowan, her aunt, plans a trip back to Ireland. And part of the reason for this trip is to come and gather her niece for a return to the United States. Catherine Kate, she also went by McGowan, was born in Masbrook, Laherdon, in 1869, also the daughter of a farmer, one of six children. She was 43 at the time of Titanic sailing, making her by far the elder of the group and in some ways the leader of this collective of sorts. Catherine, like some of her siblings, had left Ireland as a younger woman. She, around 1888, and settled first in Cleveland, Ohio. By the turn of the century, she was a resident of Chicago, like I mentioned, where she ran a boarding house at North Paulina Street, and that's where she was listed on the census in 1910. There is substantial evidence that Catherine McGowan actively championed this immigration for the young people in her native town. This was recruitment, but I don't mean it in a negative sense. Catherine had also returned with more money than she'd ever have seen in La Herdon. People around her could see it in her nice clothes, her luggage, her hats, her travel expenses covered everything. And while that in itself spoke volumes about opportunity in America, she also verbalized these tales of work and housing and at least a chance at upward mobility. Immigration themes are evident here in the micro and the macro. Families like those in Adderghul with many, many mouths to feed, it was part of the process. It was normal. It was part of life now in Ireland for young people to make a go of it in America. I talked a little bit about some of these immigration processes in my episodes on Cove, formerly Queenstown. But millions of Irish men and women left these shores in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's also reported that around this time, the shipping lines, White Star, Cunard, and the like, would send recruiters around to sell immigrants on their specific ships. Third class, known mostly as steerage class prior to White Star's elevation of accommodations, was the bread and butter of these major transatlantic lines. They all competed for immigrant dollars. We think of Titanic and we think of first class, the luxury, but it was the mass blocks of third class tickets that fueled these companies. All right, warning, this is where the names are going to start to get confusing. We have multiple Catherines, we have multiple Annies, we have multiple Bridget Delias. I kid you not. I am going to do my best to use last names. I am also going to list out all 14 Adderghul passengers in the show notes so that if you need to use it as a reference as you listen, it's there. Uh, Catherine's close friend, so Catherine McGowan, Catherine McGowan's close friend, Catherine McHugh, 
so a new Catherine, had returned home to Ireland in 1910 after being in the U.S. and would be pivoting again, this time headed back to America with a new husband, John Burke, a man who had been her childhood sweetheart back in school days. And guys, for real, it's <laughs> it's going to get confusing with the names. Um, Catherine McHugh was born in Adderghul in November of 1879, making her 33, an older age at the time for a first marriage. Both of Catherine McHugh's parents died, sadly, when she was very young in the same year, 1886. She would have been 16, which explains her immigration as well. Uh, She settled in Chicago, where she apparently already had some family that had gone ahead, probably cousins. She returned to Ireland in 1910, and after a whirlwind romance with Burke, who was a farmer, uh, she lived in the general vicinity with him and his sister Mary as of 1912. Uh, Mary was in the census described as a farmer's servant, and she had not married herself. The last name Burke I have mostly seen spelled as B-O-U-R-K-E, but it is pronounced Burke from my understanding, and in writing I have seen it just written out as B-U-R-K-E. So just to just to clarify, there's been some uh, inconsistencies in what I've seen there. If you have more information, please let me know. So recap, there's Andy McGowan, her aunt, Catherine McGowan, and now Catherine's good friend, Catherine Burke, who used to be Catherine McHugh, and her new husband, John Burke, and his sister, Mary Burke. So that's five that we have of the 14. Mary Canavan, who was born in 1889 would have been 23 when she sailed, one of nine kids, farming family as well. Mary's elder brother, Patrick, had immigrated to the U.S. shortly before her. He actually arrived in New York aboard Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic, on April 11th, 1912, if you can believe it, with a friend. Mary intended on joining him, making plans to stay with a cousin in Manhattan. This was an intricate web of communication and living situations, and it was completely by design. None of this was by accident. Cousins, siblings, they would go ahead and set up a bit of a life first, secure housing, find a job, make a little nest egg of money before sending for brothers, sisters, cousins. Get ready for the most confusing part of all of the learning of the names of the 14. Traveling with Mary Canavan were her cousins, James Flynn and Patrick Canavan. That's right. Her brother already in the U.S. and the cousin on the Titanic with her were both named Patrick Canavan. Uh, James Flynn was the one whose brother she intended to stay with in New York, but we'll talk about him more in a moment. Patrick Canavan, the cousin on Titanic, was 22, farming family, one of seven. He was, by most accounts I saw, known as Pat. Two of his older siblings had already immigrated as well. James Flynn was a cousin as well, although I did, it was a little confusing. I did see one reference of, um, James Flynn being the cousin of Annie Kelly, another Adderghul passenger who we'll talk about in a minute. So it's possible all three were cousins. <laughs> I have to be honest. Um, to to do this episode, I had I felt like a mad woman on a TV show that's stalking a serial killer, trying to find a serial killer. Uh, I had genealogy trees like written out in my notebook. And I had a go-to list of the 14 scribbled that I was carrying around in a book with me, and I was taping things on the wall next to me. So I, I, have, I have done my absolute best 
to do justice to this group to make sure that I have these stories straight. But particularly because there are so many repeats on names and because so many of these Adderquil passengers were related, they were cousins and coming from this very small village, I it's possible I have made an error. And if I have, please let me know and I will correct it. Uh, but but this is as far as I know. Uh, so James Flynn was a cousin as well. We don't know much about him save for his you know relationships and all of this and his plan to join a brother, Anthony, who actually we know um, lived until 1966 on Staten Island. We do know one touching detail about James which is that his sister, who he was leaving behind in Adderall, was actually deaf, and he was the only one in the family who could communicate with her via sign language. So that's actually a tad bit heartbreaking. All right, on to another Annie. Annie, Anna Catherine Kelly, known as Annie, so Annie Kelly, was a cousin of the Canavans and Flint as well. Okay, so there we go. It was in my own research, and I was questioning it. That's how confusing all of this has been. She was born in 1892, so she was just 20, and she was headed to Chicago to join another set of cousins. We have some Bridgets. Bridget Donahoe, also 20, had lost her mother as a young child and grew up in the area with her father, a stepmother, and several half-siblings. We know she was part of the group and headed to Chicago, but we know very little else. At least I could find very little else. So if you have any information on Bridget Donahoe, that is a (laughs) call to action because I would love to know more. And unfortunately, she just seems to be the passenger in this group that we know the very least of. Bridget Mahone, who was known as Delia, whose mother was related to Bridget Donahoe's stepmother. And yes, here we go. More devil names. uh, Also joined the group. So this is Delia Mahone, Bridget Delia Mahone. She was also 20, also from a large family. Her father died in 1906 when she was just 14, leaving her brother Patrick to run their household. By the time of the 1910 census, her widowed mother was working the farm with two sons. Bridget and her sister Margaret were absent from the family home in that census and working elsewhere as servants. Bridget as a servant to a physician in Ballywork, County Mayo. Uh, Bridget was headed to Brooklyn. And I, you know, I wrote her down. I keep writing her down as Bridget and I forget she went by Delia, but this is Bridget Delia, uh, where she had apparently friends and family already in Brooklyn. Mary Mangan was born in Adderall in 1879, making her 33. So one of the older of the group. Her father had died when she was still very young of tuberculosis and her mother never remarried. She and her sister Ellen actually immigrated to the United States before this trip, although exactly when is not clear. It might have been 1906, according to some sources. Her brother Edward had also gone to the U.S. around 1905, uh, going to St. Louis and then settling in Chicago. Mary and Ellen went home for a visit to Ireland in early 1912. It was likely on occasion to announce Mary's engagement, although the identity of her suitor, I believe, remains unknown. So here is a love story missing. It's quite possible Mary was going home to excitedly announce an engagement with plans to then rejoin a betrothed. Her sister Ellen remained behind in Ireland, but Mary would board Titanic with the rest of the group from Adderall since they were headed back as well. Honora, Nora Fleming, so 
Honora, Honora. I I don't think that that rolls off of my southern tongue very well. Honora. H-O-N-O-R-A, but went by Nora. Nora Fleming was born in 1888, one of 11 children, and 24 at the time of sailing. Uh, Nora's sister Catherine had immigrated to the U.S. already in 1910, was in Manhattan, and so Nora was going to join her there. All right, bear with me. We are almost to 14. And this one is, this next person is, Uh, someone we have a lot of information on. This is Bridget Delia McDermott. That's right, another Bridget Delia. She was born in 1881, a farmer's daughter, and was traveling to the home of her cousin in St. Louis. Now, before her departure, a couple of important things happened that we know. One is that she traveled with her mother to the town of Cross Molina to buy new clothing, and one of the purchases was a stylish new hat. Her mother insisted that American girls would would always be in their stylish hats and gloves and never be caught without them. And so she wanted to purchase this for her daughter before she took her trip. And it is going to come into play again later on. So remember this hat. The other thing that happened before she left uh, is was recounted to us from Delia McDermott's niece. Uh, she said that she had heard this story through the family, that there was this strange and unnerving encounter between her aunt, Delia McDermott, and a mysterious man in black in La Herdon the evening before she left for Queenstown. And this is the quote. Quote, this is the quote from the niece. She was in La Herdon with friends when suddenly a hand tapped her on the shoulder. She turned around and there was a little man there whom she thought was a traveler. My aunt went to give the man a few pennies and he told her he knew she was going on a long journey. There will be a tragedy, but you will be saved the little man said before disappearing. When Bridget mentioned this man to her friends, they said that they (laughs) didn't recall seeing anybody of that description. And so Delia McDermott began her journey with probably a good bit of nerves as can nerves as can be imagined, though at the time she likely just chalked it up to the, you know, anxiety-ridden feelings of going on such a long and life-changing journey. And what's interesting, I forgot to uh, mention it, um, one of the other passengers, uh, the other Bridget Delia, Bridget Delia Mahone, uh, she actually, her family had a story of a premonition as well, that the night before she left for Queenstown, her brother, who's very spiritual and superstitious, actually read her tea leaves and told her that the reading was of impending doom. But that didn't stop her, obviously, from getting on the train the very next day. Leaving their home for the last time as they made their way to the immigrant ship, they would have cast a last glance over their shoulders, a last look at their childhood home. The tall stone gable of their cottage with its distinctive little garret window would likely have been their last memory of home, their parents and family members perhaps waving them goodbye from the street outside the half door. The wisp of turf smoke wafting around the little chimney in the thatched roof. There has long been a tradition in Mayo, at Christmas especially, but also on anniversaries and feast days, to light a candle or a lamp and place it in a high gable window. 
a beacon for the traveler and especially for the wandering souls of Mayo's immigrants, gosh, ensuring them that their memory is not forgotten and that there is always a welcome for them in their home. Wow. So they have a gable on site, stone. It says, our gable comes from a house in the parish that was finally abandoned in the 1950s. During the hundred years it was lived in, this home saw scores of its children leave Lahardin. Restoring it here is in our memorial park. We remember all those who have left and we promise to keep the lamp lit for their descendants. Incredible. On April 10th, the group departed via horse and buggy to Castle Bar train station, where Catherine McGowan took the lead on the purchase of 14 train train tickets to Queenstown, where Titanic would drop anchor just off the coast in its last port of call before open ocean. It's that last scene in the 97 movie that they stopped on the coast of Ireland and there was nothing else out ahead of them except for ocean. We know little about the specific circumstances of their weight, of the Adderall 14's weight, at the James Scott and Company offices. They were the agents for the White Star Line in Queenstown. But we know they would have waited below on the first floor, as the top floor and balcony would have been reserved for the weights of first and second class passengers, of which there were only a few boarding at Queenstown. The tender ship Ireland surprised the journalists and those gathered to watch all of this, and also the 10 Titanic cabin passengers, so first and second class, by casting off while the America was still getting filled with third class passengers. But it had a purpose. It was cruising a few hundred yards uh, alongside the deep water key to the railway station, which Another bit of trivia is now the Cove Heritage Center, which we also went to and is a wonderful, wonderful place of public history. The Tendership Ireland took on 1,385 sacks of mail that would go on to America. Of course, Titanic was RMS Titanic Royal Mail Ship. Titanic. So then the other tender America followed, carrying the third-class passengers. And of course, they were segregated even in their tenders, first and second class on one tender ship and third on another. It was on the tender ship America that we know passenger Eugene Daly played traditional Irish folk music as they removed from Irish soil, probably something like Spansel Hill. And while it is just an observation and could never be fact, I imagine that goosebumps filled many arms and spread across many temples as the Adderall 14 and their fellow travelers approached the massive Titanic. Irish music in their ears symbolizing the past, but this beacon of modernity carrying them to some kind of future. A photographer in Queenstown named Thomas Barker took shots of the time Titanic waited there and people boarding the tenders. And it is those which are some of the only ones that we have of third-class passengers preparing to board Titanic. On Titanic, the single men would have been in cabins separate from the single women. Third class was designed to keep females and families, quote unquote, safe from unattached men who were, according to the etiquette and belief systems of the time, a danger for particularly unmarried women. But the accommodations on Titanic in general would have been comfortable, warm, and quite luxurious for the Adderall 14. Like I mentioned earlier, they were from cramped homes in a tiny village. 
this would have been probably the first time that they existed with electricity, a sink in their room, running water. They had three hot meals a day, tea service, linen tablecloths on tables in the dining saloon. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. A lot of times when I hear podcasts that do standalone episodes on Titanic, while I appreciate that effort, it's really important for it to keep circulating, you know, among history podcasts and be part of textbooks and curriculum. And, and, and of course, but a lot of times when people do a standalone episode, they'll sort of diss the third class accommodations and they'll diss White Star Line by including the fact that there were only, what, three bathtubs on board. I guess trying to sort of jokingly imply that third class sucked, but it did not suck. I I mean, of course, we have there's always the elephant in the room, which is class differences and the fact that first and second class were much nicer. But in turn, if you isolate just third class and that experience, White Star had elevated that experience so much from what was formerly known as a steerage situation. So before these liners became luxurious, became larger before these liners started competing for third-class immigration business. Steerage was cramped, dirty, you know, would have been the part of the ship that didn't have as many conveniences. The food was either terrible or non-existent, and you would have to pack your own food for the whole freaking voyage. And now, They're in, you know, if you're in third class on Titanic, you're in accommodations that are similar to second class on a lot of other ships. The bunks have real mattresses. Although I think, I think except for the third class men, I think they still had straw. But, you know, bunks with mattresses and pillows, sinks in the rooms, and you go into these dining areas and you have hot tea and fresh bread and fruit. There's a scene in a documentary I'll tell you about at the end when I talk about my sources called Waking Titanic, and it is specifically about the Adderall 14. And there is a recreation scene where they have actors uh, portraying some of them on board. And one of them is just just so enamored of a banana. And he's sitting there with the banana like, should we try it? I've never seen this before. And that's what it would have been like. There was food to try. There was beer on board. I mean, probably a lot of, listen, times change, people don't, right? A lot of these teenagers and people in their early 20s in this 14, they came from homes that were probably very strict. Uh, They may have never had access to an ice cold beer. You know, maybe they throw one back and dance a little bit and they're excited and joyful and they're coming into their adulthood and they're coming into their new life. And there was revelry and joy. I always think about the third class scene in the 97 movie. We have no reason to believe that's not authentic. That probably is 100% authentic to what it looked like. There is this joy and music and singing and camaraderie in third class. And the the Adderall 14 are a part of this for the whole first part of this journey. April 14th was actually Nora Fleming's birthday. So she was dancing and people remember her singing. One sobering fact 
to keep in mind is that most of the Irish immigrants on board, many of the third-class immigrants more generally on Titanic, wouldn't have known how to swim. So the keep in mind as we head into a conversation about the sinking, the prospect of these smaller lifeboats would have been terrifying, the open ocean, as was the chaos of the public rooms and the decks, the chaos we are all familiar with in the Titanic story. So the terror was from all angles, in every choice, in every direction. Interviewed in 1984, Annie McGowan recalled that on the night of April 14th, she and her aunt, Catherine McGowan, were attending a party in third class. The drinking apparently made her aunt uncomfortable, and so they left early. Annie could not remember any crash or feeling any sort of slamming or bumping, anything like that. And the women were in the part of the ship that wouldn't have seen water on the floor this early. So that tracks. But what she did recall was the sudden appearance of stewards and crew members who were just rushing around and in a frenzy. And one of them related to her already that the ship had no chance of survival, in his words. And at first, she truly thought it was some sort of joke. On the night of the sinking, Catherine, John, and Mary Burke were all reportedly asleep at the time of the collision. Now remember, Catherine and John Burke are the newlywed couple, and Mary is uh, John's sister. They were, by all accounts, definitely a trio during the sinking, stuck together, and joined with different members of the Adder Goal 14, but at different times during the chaos. But, I mean, to be clear, it's just impossible to be sure of all of the groupings during this chaos, I'm going to do my best to relate what happens, you know, in the course of the evening to the Adergal 14. But there are a few Adergal passengers that we don't really know much about during the sinking, unfortunately. Catherine, John, and Mary Burke definitely all made it to the upper decks. Um, And they seem to have met different other members of the group along the way. Uh, John Burke and Pat Canavan apparently knew from walking around the ship and exploring it during the course of the voyage that there was a ladder leading to the upper decks. You know, it's important to remember third class wasn't oriented to people in third class wouldn't have been oriented to how to get anywhere else. There were gates, there were doors they were very purposely kept separate from first and second class. There wouldn't have just been knowledge by a passenger of, oh, I can get to second class through that door. And there was a very intricate set of of ladders. And so it, it took, it took the proactive thought and then the actions of John Burke and Pat Canavan from these accounts um, that I read to gather some of the Adder Goal 14 together and move them up. There was, of course, all of the the loading of the boats going on on the first class decks. And these men apparently knew instinctively that they had to get up. They had to move up. And so they are sort of sneaking around, it sounds like, to bypass some of the areas of third class where they're being told to stay in the third class public rooms. They are gathering the women and the girls around them. And Annie Kelly, who 
is one of the few survivors, described Pat and John herding members towards an iron ladder at the aft poop deck, which would lead them to those higher decks. There were only three boats left when this group reached those uh, loading areas. Both Catherine and Mary Burke refused to be parted from John under the women and children first ruling. So often we hear the story of Ida and Isidore Strauss, the owners of Macy's who refused to be separated and died together on Titanic. Their story is of a great romance and then of great sacrifice. But here is another story so similar as well. John and Catherine Burke, newlyweds and by some account expecting their first baby, refusing at the end to separate. As they lived together, they died together. At some point, Annie McGowan was separated from her aunt, Catherine McGowan, likely simply because of the confusion. She did, however, make it into a lifeboat, which was likely number 13. And we will talk about her again more in a moment. The night of the sinking, Annie Kelly said that the stewards did not wake the steerage passengers in time. Those third-class passengers who became alarmed and went up to the decks to investigate were, she said, told to go back as there was no danger. This meshes with many third-class reports of families gathering in the public rooms or their own rooms at the very end, shocked at how quickly the water had overtaken the ship and left with literally no options at that point. Of course, there's no definitives here, and we know some crew members and officers made wildly differing decisions throughout that night. Annie Kelly was saved in lifeboat 16 after the Burks vacated and made room for her to enter. Later on, she said she was haunted by the, quote, wild scenes on the boat just before it went down. She watched her cousin, James Flynn, lift his rosary beads to her as the boat rode away, the last she would ever see of him. At the time of the collision, Bridget Delia McDermott was sleeping and felt nothing. She was only alerted to anything being wrong when a steward came to her cabin and told her and her cabin mates to get up, get dressed, quote unquote, head topside. The steward, however, also assured them that there was no real danger. So Bridget recalled that officers did hold some passengers back Uh, telling them that they were not ready for them. This sort of calls to mind that scene in the 97 movie when Tommy is at the gates and the officers say exactly that. But Bridget was able to find a lifeboat. But what happened next is pretty crazy. So she jumps out of the lifeboat and goes all the way back to third class to retrieve her hat, the hat that her mother had insisted she buy. This hat that was a connection to her family and also so representative of this future that she wanted. She goes back and she gets the hat. She runs back to where they're loading the boats. All of the boats are gone at this point. So she jumps down 15 feet into the boat. Her granddaughter has since shared that also Uh, Delia McDermott would tell stories of passengers picking up bits of the iceberg and putting it in their drinks at some point in the night. McDermott escaped uh, probably in lifeboat 13, we think is the one she jumped into. And um, she did, like I said, 
miraculously make it in there dry. Uh, Nora Fleming, we don't know much, but apparently she kept singing throughout the chaos to try to keep people calm. The only mention of Mary Mangan during the sinking comes from Annie Kelly, who described being accompanied by Mary and the Burks as they rushed toward that ladder when I talked about John and Pat uh, helping them to the ladder that would take them up to the upper decks in second and first class. Where Whether Mary ever actually made it up there, we don't know. Mary died in the sinking, along with 10 others of the Adder Goal 14, but her body was the only one recovered of this group by the Mackay Bennett, the recovery ship. She was buried at sea on April 22nd of 1912, and I will read the description of her body found. She was number 61. Female, estimated age 30. Hair, light. Clothing, a green waterproof, black coat, skirt, blouse, red cardigan jacket, black button boots with cloth uppers. Effects, one gold watch engraved inside M. Mangan and photo, an outside M. Mangan, gold locket with hair and photo as in watch, engraved Mary, gold chain, beads in pocket, brass belt buckle, medallion round neck, diamond solitaire ring, Gold bracelet, M, M, wire gold brooch. No marks on clothing, probably third class. Name, Mary Mangan. Her possessions were sent back to her family, and the gold watch remained in the family, uh, starting with her nephew, Anthony Mangan. The ring, however, mysteriously, apparently never made it back to the family, and no one knows what happened to it. Her brother Edward later attempted to sue White Star Line for the loss of his sister. Now, I know you're probably thinking, what about everybody else? Uh, What about other information on Nora Fleming? What about more on Pat Canavan or Canavan? I'm so sorry, Canavan, Canavan. I don't know how uh, to uh, pronounce it. Um, or Bridget Donahoe. I, I, I wish I had more to share. Um, the sources just don't seem to be there. So there's not a clear picture of where some of them were during the sinking. News would have traveled back to Adderghoul more slowly than it did, obviously, to New York or back, back to Southampton because Adderghoul was rural. But with wireless and this vast network of newspapers, it was likely only a few days before it became alarmingly clear to the people back home in Adderghoul that such a large percentage of the group might be gone. Um, From the Chicago paper, April 19th, 1912, quote, the first to telephone the White Star office in Chicago was Ellen McHugh, who is a domestic. She is alone in America. For weeks, she had been planning the many good times she would have with her sister and other relatives in Chicago. And remember, Catherine McHugh. Uh, McHugh was also a name uh, in many of the families of the Adder Goal 14. What have you heard? Asked Ellen McHugh over the telephone. Ian Holstrom answered, nothing new. 
Nothing new meant that the first report that included the Burks among those lost was true. Annie Kelly was hospitalized in New York City and later traveled from New York with Annie McGowan, so two Annies surviving. They had been released from the hospital wearing nightgowns, old shoes, and coats. They were met in Chicago by Dr. Mary O'Brien Porter of the Catholic Women's League Protectorate, and she appealed to the mayor of Chicago to give them funds raised by the city. Afterwards, Annie Kelly actually became a nun, and when she became a nun and uh, was ordained, she took on the name Sister Patrick Joseph Kelly. She did actually return to Ireland to visit her sister uh, in Crossmolina, County Mayo. As Sister Patrick Joseph, she spent much of her life after Titanic teaching. She taught in the Chicago area. She also spent time in Detroit and Des Moines, Iowa. She retired in Adrian, Michigan in 1969. So she lived a very long life, and she is buried in the Adrian Dominican Sisters Cemetery, Adrian, Michigan. She is in Section Circle 2. So you can go and see her grave if you are in the area. Bridget Delia McDermott's brother, Thomas, later followed her across the Atlantic the same year and would live with her. Bridget Delia was married towards the end of the decade to a fellow Irishman, John Joseph Lynch. He was a railroad worker from Galway who immigrated in 1915. They settled in New Jersey. They had three children and reportedly ran a boarding house for many years. Bridget Lynch, as she was then known, died in Jersey City on November 3rd. (laughs) It's my birthday. 1959 at age 78 and was buried under a headstone in Holy Name Cemetery in a resting place with three other Irish survivors, Margaret Devaney, Elizabeth Dowdle and Thomas McCormick. Oh, guys, I I know my voice sounds up and down. It's This is an emotional one to get through. All right. In later years, Annie McGowan recalled the bitter cold of being in the open ocean on the Atlantic. The screams, like many of the survivors, were hard to get out of her head for the rest of her life. She recalled how the ship, quote, just busted in half while it was sinking. So many third-class passengers openly reported the ship breaking in half, but of course that wasn't confirmed until 1985 when Robert Ballard and John Louis Michel found the wreck site of Titanic. Coming off of Carpathia, New York, Annie McGowan was described as an unmarried 17-year-old, no stated profession, and her destination was Chicago, like I mentioned. She later said that upon landing, a sailor said to her, look, you can see the Statue of Liberty. Take a good look at the other side because you will never go back there. And she responded that she never would, never wanting to set foot on another boat as long as she lived, which 
from the accounts that I read, she never did. Now, like I mentioned, she was hospitalized in New York alongside Annie Kelly, and the American Red Cross assisted in her education by actually sending her to business school, and then she worked to support herself. She was joined in America two years after the sinking by her brother, Anthony. She was married in 1920 to Raymond Albert Strobe, who was a plumber and a Chicago native. They settled in Chicago and had three daughters. Annie was described by her family as strong and fearless and a fighter to the end, but like a lot of survivors, she never cared to speak about Titanic and only on very seldom and random occasions for her grandchildren when they were doing school projects or they would ask probing questions, would she open up? and talk about it. She also did a very rare newspaper article in 1984. I included a couple of quotes from that earlier. She she did keep a collection of newspaper articles for many years about the sinking, though. I think that's very understandable and probably very common in terms of experiencing a trauma like this. In 1985, when the shipwreck was found, Annie was critical of any mention of bringing artifacts up from the ocean floor, and she felt that Titanic should not be disturbed but left completely in peace. Annie McGowan did not die until January of 1990 at the age of 95 and was buried in All Saints Cemetery, De Plains, Iowa. I'm sorry. And was later buried in All Saints Cemetery, De Plains, Illinois. After she died, there was only one Irish Titanic survivor remaining, a native of Cork, actually Ellen Shine Callahan, who lived in Long Island, and she died three years later. The Burks, um, they did pass away in the sinking, but there is a family headstone in Adderghul that remembers both of them. Lots of plaques, uh, bell ringing ceremony. Uh, it explains that the annual bell ringing ceremony to commemorate the Adderghul 14 takes place on April 15th at 2.20 a.m. Gosh, I wish I was here for that. The survivors, Delia McDermott, she went on to marry John Lynch. They had two daughters. She died in 1959, buried in New Jersey. Annie Kate Kelly became a teacher. Wow, and a Dominican nun, Sister Patrick Joseph. Visits were made home in the 1950s. She died in 1969, is buried in Michigan. And Annie McGowan married Ray Straub. They had three daughters. She didn't die till 1990 age 95, and is buried in De Plains, Iowa. So there were stories of parents in Adderghul and family waiting for days and days of news of their sons and daughters and cousins. And uh, it took a long time for all of the information to trickle in, which is probably the most heartbreaking part of all of this. There were wakes held in the homes for family members who would never be brought home. So there were these American wakes held when they left, and just a week or two later, actual wakes for these children that would never come home, never make it to America, and their bodies would never make it home either. The event had a profound effect on the entire community, as you can imagine, and for the longest time was actually silenced. 
told only in whispers because the collective heartache was far too great. But in recent decades, there has been a concerted effort on the part of descendants and villagers to tell the stories of the 14 in vibrant detail to make sure these stories stay alive for many generations to come. The loss of them, the loss of Titanic, is now remembered annually with a candlelit bell-ringing ceremony. Every year on April 15th at 2.20 a.m. when Titanic sunk beneath the ocean, 14 bells ring out after a candlelit walk through the town of Lahardin. The local church now boasts one of only two Titanic-themed stained glass windows in the world. 14 bells, 14 lights and windows, always waiting. This episode is dedicated to the 11 who never made it to America. Catherine McGowan, Catherine Burke, John Burke, Mary Burke, Mary Canavan, James Flynn, Patrick Canavan, Bridget Donahoe, Bridget Delia Mahone, Mary Mangan, and Nora Fleming. Oh, um, I, uh, I have to say, you know, I, I pride myself on this podcast being, I mean, it's an independent podcast, but as professionally produced as I can get it. Um, and I do work from painstakingly written and researched scripts for the most part, obviously I do some episodes that are are a little different than that. But with this one, writing the script was just one part of it. It was such an emotional journey. And it started, you know, years ago when I heard this story. And then it continued when I actually got to go to Adderghul. Being there in the shadow of Mount Neffin, we were only there for three hours. But It was truly one of the best experiences of my life. The memorial is so beautifully done. And I I posted a photo on my Instagram and I'll post some more. The statuary, the statues of of the passengers and the Titanic Memorial embossed in gold and some of the plaques. I read some of them in the recordings that I shared on here. It's such a well-done piece of public history. It's so moving to go and see. So, you know, it's a little bit out of the way. It really is a good hour, hour and a half drive out of the way for most major, you know, tourist attractions or or larger towns and cities that you would visit in Ireland. But it is so worth the extra trip if you find yourself there. I cannot recommend going enough. So, yeah, and I, I think I've been putting off doing this episode because I knew the emotional weight would get to me. And it did. But that's what this is all about. You know, I I spent, like I said, this past weekend communicating to so many of you about the joy of the film, the 97 film, and going to see it on the big screen. And that's amazing. And Leo and Kate are just this glorious, you know, pairing that we have to celebrate. And there's so much magic in them and James Cameron. But, you know, you strip that away and and what it's really about are these real stories. 
anyway, I think we all know that (laughs) I'm preaching to the choir, but this was um, a wonderful episode to do, but a very hard episode to do. So, you know, sources. Now, not really a source, but a recommendation. I recommend if you haven't read The Girl Who Came Home by Hazel Gaynor, 100% you should. And then I have the book club episode where I talked with her. There's also uh, source-wise a book called The Irish Aboard Titanic um, by Shannon, S-E-N-A-N. I don't know how to pronounce that first name, Maloney. It is still in print, but it's expensive and in paperback, um, but it is there. And this is the problem with a lot of Titanic books. You know, they're from small publishing houses and they're small limited runs. And so they do end up being expensive, but it is there. I also uh, ran across a documentary I did not know about called Waking the Titanic, which I think came out about 10 years ago. And it does uh, recreations of some of the scenes of the Adderall 14, you know, leaving and on Titanic. And it has a lot of great interviews with Adderall descendants. And that is available free on YouTube. And I will link it in the show notes for sure. What's amazing, as I can tell from being there, that they did actually film film it in Adderall. And the the general store that we popped into in Adderall is actually used as like a pub slash store uh, setting in this documentary. So it was cool to see. We we popped into this general store looking for hot food. And like I said, they didn't have it, but I recognized it when I watched this uh, documentary. So definitely give that a watch if you're interested in seeing kind of some of the people come to life. Um, Encyclopedia Titanica, of course, is always a wonderful resources for the sort of facts and figures of all of this. But I will say, I think on the Adderall 14, I had to piece together a lot of small to medium sources. There is definitely room here for people to write about them, to make this research more cohesive, to talk to family members, to talk to descendants. So, you know, I mean, maybe it'll be me that does it one day. I would love to go over there and research more. But someone in Ireland, certainly this would be an amazing project for someone to take on. So I hope that someone does. You know, the the Adderall 14 is not in any of the film adaptations, which I find strange. Um, it seems like such a moving thing. Uh, obviously, in a couple of the films, there are groups of Irish immigrants headed to Titanic, and I think maybe they are meant to represent the Adderall 14, but certainly not specifically named in those. So, As always, I would love your feedback. If you have any more information, if you have other sources to recommend, please, please let me know. In the meantime, make sure you are subscribed to the show. If you have a second, pop over to Apple or Spotify and rate or review. I sound like a broken record, but it really, really helps the visibility of the podcast. And, you know, the podcast is growing. I... I was looking at my um, my stats just the other day, and the last episode that I posted, which was the reaction pod to the James Cameron film re-release, had the most downloads of any first episode, you know, within its first week that I've ever had. So it's, <laughs> I don't know, it's like this little baby that I birthed and I... I used to be happy when I saw an episode, you know, had like 10 downloads. 
downloads. And now it's just like thousands and thousands of downloads from all over the world every day and week. And um, I don't know. It's just cool. So I was going to read, let's see here, my top cities. So if I go back to my very first episode. Uh, so this would be the episode that, you know, most people would download if they were st- at least going to start on the pod and give it a chance. I wanted to read out my top cities and give a shout out. So it's still Sydney, New South Wales, number one consumer of Unsinkable, which I never expected. And that's so cool. And Melbourne, Victoria, number two. Um, number three, Jolly Old London, England, number four, Chicago, Illinois, and number five, New York, New York. So very, like, much more global in my top five than I would have ever anticipated. And Dublin's close. One, two, three, four. Dublin is seven. So, yeah, thank you for listening. I hear from people on email and Instagram DM all the time, just like saying hi, like, hey, I found the pod. Always feel free to do that. Um, like I said, merch is available. And if you wear the unsinkable shirt out into the world, please send me a picture and let me know. I've got my kids in the oversized ones. They didn't have kid sizes in this run that I did. Uh, I think maybe I can add them. I've got to look, but they've got basically like night shirts that they wear. So they're adorable. But um, yeah, you know, just if you're a fan of the pod, there are these ways you can support it. Buying a shirt or sweatshirt, joining Patreon, rate review, an announcement. I have started updating my website again, and I've got it back in working order, and I've got my events page completely updated. So definitely check that. And on March 16th, I have another meetup. I've got a meetup in Asheville, North Carolina. So if you're in the Western North Carolina area, or if you're in Knoxville that's really close, um, please consider stopping by. We're going to go to Burial Brewing, which is this awesome little brewery in Asheville. And we're just going to hang out like we did at the Austin meetup. So shoot me a message, find me on Insta if you want to talk about it at all, or if you plan on coming, shoot me kind of an unofficial RSVP. So I just get a sense of how many people to expect so I can talk to Burial if it's going to be a larger group. All right. I think that's about it. This was a such a wonderful experience to share the Adder Goal story with you. I will be back in just a few days with a fun episode. This was heavy. We're going to move to something fun in a few days. I can't wait. Um, Yeah. Have a great rest of your week and stay unsinkable. Bye, guys. (laughs) 